Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And my guest today is Dr. Joshua Malden. Dr. Malden is the Associate Director of the Center of Theological Inquiry at Princeton, and he's also the author of Bart Bonhoeffer and Modern Politics. Dr. Malden, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, uh, same here. Um, I mentioned this briefly before we hopped on, but I actually am meeting up with my advisor uh, for my dissertation and uh, some other postgraduate students at the University of Aberdeen to talk about your book tomorrow morning. So um, I'm hoping that you can help me with my homework a little bit. Well, thanks. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can shoot me an email of, of questions that are raised. And congratulations to you. I'm beginning your, your PhD, uh, if that's what they call it, in, in, in Aberdeen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I will definitely follow up about that. It was it was funny because um, I kind of have a regular rhythm of reading Bonhoeffer secondary works through this podcast. You know, it's yeah. kind of like once a month. I, I you do must that. have a, a stack of Bonhoeffer books somewhere in your room of all the for all the podcasts you've done there. Right. Yeah. So uh, so Dr. Ziegler, my advisor, he was just like, who are, who are you reading next? <laughs> I was like, oh, I want to read this. Bart Bonhoeffer and Modern Politics book. And he was like, oh, I'm reading this with another uh, with another student um, or another student is reading it. Would you like to get together? And then he's like, I'll just throw the invite out to everybody. So um, that's, that's happening tomorrow, which is great. I don't know. It's weird for me because uh, I'm, I'm definitely the new guy in the room. I'm like two, two months in, you know, so it'll be interesting to kind of interact with everyone because I'm in the States and a small town in northern Utah. So um, I don't really get to interact very much with with the other students, so should be fun. Well, that's great. Yeah, it's going to be a, you're you're going to have a great experience working with with uh, Philip Ziegler, who I don't know personally, but I, I admire his work. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Um, so I mean, I'm two months in, but I couldn't ask for anything better. Um, but enough about me. Let's uh, let's hop into the book a little bit. Um, you wrote this book obviously on Bart and Bonhoeffer so I usually ask the question of how did you get just you know, get into Bonhoeffer or did you discover Bonhoeffer but um, for any of sort of the Bonhoeffer related questions I'm also going to ask you the Bart related questions just because and I imagine they're pretty closely related um, but how did you discover Bart slash Bonhoeffer how did that happen it's funny because I and I knew you were going to ask that, and in part, my answer is I don't remember if I'm being honest. Uh, but maybe, maybe I'll focus on the Bonhoeffer side of, for this particular question. Um, I I do remember, my, and probably my first inter interaction with even knowing about Bonhoeffer was was in college, just because I had a roommate who was reading the Cost of Discipleship, and and he was more just telling me about it. A uh, roommate named Ross, uh, and. Uh, that was my first kind of interaction. I didn't really read it, but he, he told me a lot about the ideas in it, and, and I was intrigued. Um, then I was doing an MDiv at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. Um, and, you know, I came across some Bonhoeffer readings in survey courses, but didn't really have, I never took a, a seminar on Bonhoeffer. You know, I hear about people taking, you know, seminars just focused on Bonhoeffer or even on one of Bonhoeffer's works. And I, I'm sort of jealous of that because I never really had that experience. And then, uh, then I was doing a PhD and uh, trying to find a dissertation topic. I, I was initially had a kind of, well, I, I have a, another interest in law and theology or law and religion, the intersection of those. And I'm, I'm still, I still do some research and work in that area and tend to do more. 
Um, and initially when I began my PhD, that was the area I was going to work on a, a kind of very niche uh, project on international law. And for a variety of reasons, I, I decided to go another route. And, you know, one of the reasons was, and, and I initially began with BART in this, I had been doing coursework uh, for, for a while in my PhD, like you do in the American system. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea, well, I took a seminar on Thomas Aquinas and it really struck me that I, I wanted to spend some time, at least during my doctoral studies and during my dissertation in particular, working with kind of a, for lack of a better word, a sort of big thinker who had a massive amount of work and who had sort of thought through a lot of the theological topics. And I even considered Thomas Aquinas, but uh, for a variety of reasons, chose Karl Barth. And so I uh, decided I wanted to write a dissertation on Barth. And at the, at the time, I was also, I'd been doing a lot of reading in, in folks like Charles Taylor. I was really interested in these debates about modernity and these sort of sweeping histories of the modern age that, that Taylor, you know, his secular age book, for example, I read very closely, um, I think twice during my doctoral studies. And, and I also really got a lot from his sources of the self, a somewhat older, but also gigantic book uh, that he wrote. And I was very interested in kind of combining these interests I had in this history, this kind of history of modern philosophy. I also remember reading a, a book by J.B. Schneven, um, the invention of autonomy, another kind of massive, long history of how we got up into modern uh, philosophy. Hmm. And, uh, but I also knew, I mean, I couldn't, as a sort of doctoral student, write something like that, like this sort of massive history of the modern period. But I could kind of take some of the questions that I was getting from that reading and put it in conversation uh, with somebody like Bart. And I also decided Bonhoeffer was a, a natural uh, addition to that, not least because he, you know, as I talk about in the book, he writes a lot in ethics about, um, you know, heritage and decay, the Christian heritage of the modern West and so on and so forth. So I, I, I saw it as bringing these two discourses together. And in a sense, that helped me get a, a handle on what would otherwise be a kind of un, unwieldy uh, topic. Hmm. That's a long answer, I think, but hopefully. No, I- that's, that's great. Um, so I'm really interested, like main, the main thing I'm so interested in doing in this podcast are just learning what people are passionate about and what kind of yeah. get them going in that. Um, I haven't had anyone on here uh, that's explicitly dealing with political thought um, mm-hmm. in their in their works. How did that come about for you? I mean, I, I feel like to varying degrees, most of society is somewhat political um, and has stances and those sort of things, but I think few would want to write a book on it. Um, so how did, how did that interest into political theology arise? My PhD, uh, my focus was in Christian ethics, um, theological ethics, rather than kind of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. So I was always kind of beginning with these questions of religion and politics and Indeed, when I was sort of delving into the systematic theological questions, you know, related to the, the Trinity or, or salvation or Christology, I always felt somewhat that that was a get, bit, getting a bit outside of my area of expertise. So it, for me, it was always somewhat natural. And I always, even when reading Bart and Bonhoeffer, I was always kind of drawn to their, their more political stances. Now, that's not to say I, I really, it really enjoy reading, you know, someone like Bart his Christology. I mean, one of my favorite books by Bart, maybe we'll come to this at the very end of your podcast, of the podcast, is a book called Evangelical Theology and Introduction, where he's really talking about 
you know, what it means to be a theologian, to talk about all the sort of wide sweeping aspects of, of the faith and, and so on. So it's not that I'm not interested in that, but it, I, I was always sort of, uh, it was natural to begin with these kind of political um, questions, I suppose. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, so in your book, you, um, you go through some terms that I guess, A, since I haven't had anyone working in political theology on, and B, since uh, a lot of political terms are a sort of junk drawer terms that are used uh, in many different senses, I I'd like to have you kind of just kind of de define them for us so that when we jump into the book, we can kind of like know exactly where we're at. Um, so the first one uh, is just liberal democracy. Um, so I, I think liberal the word liberal is that one of those junk drawer terms that I'm not. Um, so I figured it might be useful before we jump in to, to maybe right. know that. Yeah. So yeah, liberal is a word that has probably about a million definitions, doesn't it? And right. people use it in completely different ways, not even um, out of some kind of nefarious reason that just has literally completely different meanings uh, that, it, exactly. uh, that it's used for. So when I say political liberalism or liberal democracy, I don't in any way mean what we think of as kind of leftism or progressivism as it's used sometimes in the United States uh, as, you know, to be opposed to conservatism or, or something like that. It um, instead refers to a you know, one way to put it is the liberalism I'm talking about, political liberalism actually encompasses what in the United States we would think of as Republicans and, and Democrats. I mean, they're, they have a lot of differences and, and uh, at times, especially today, it might seem like they're really diverging, but in a very broad sense, they're both within the tradition of political liberalism as, as it's being discussed in, in this uh, framework. And, you know, we can think of liberal democracy, there's certain features. I mean, to, you know, step back. I mean, as you saw in the book, in some ways, I, I try to avoid defining it, mm -hmm. um, partly because it is such a, a difficult concept to define. Um, and I kind of allow it to be defined by the critics of liberalism who I discuss in the first chapter. I discuss the historian Brad Gregory, a historian at Notre Dame University, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, and the theologian Stanley Hauerwas. So I kind of allow their criticisms of what they see as liberalism to help us kind of um, name the contours of it. But, it. but if I had to define it, you know, it'd be, you're going to have certain features like a focus on, on elections, on representation, on accountability of government, on rule of law, hmm. you know, multi-party elections, separation of powers, checks and balances. So you don't have all the authority in, in one individual who both makes the law and also executes and, and judges it, but you also have an independent judiciary and, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole lot of features. Another way that this gets sort of mapped out is that in liberal democracies, we have these sort of overriding values of liberty, also can be called freedom and equality. And one, someone might say that one of the challenges of liberal democracies is how to reconcile those two those two norms, because uh, in some senses, it sometimes seems like they they get in tension with one another. You know, we we want to sort of help foster equality, but how can we do that without infringing on liberty and, and vice versa? So there's a lot of debates about this. Um, and to some extent, I mean, I've been thinking about this lately in regard to the, the COVID-19 pandemic, 
you know, especially the first, say, six months of the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about how Western democracies in particular were really not able to cope with it as well as some kind of more, let's say, authoritarian or mm -hmm. illiberal societies that had less qualms with, you know, for example, monitoring people's cell phones, uh, surveilling them, watching where everybody's going so that you can sort of find the, the spread of the disease. Also, you know, many countries would forcibly put people into hotels. I mean, arguably for their own good, you know, putting them in a hotel to sort of sequester them so they weren't spreading the disease either to their friends, neighbors, and so on. And there was always, uh, not only in the United States, but in many of the Western democracies, that was a, a very difficult thing to do. It was against, uh, there were a lot of actual laws that made it not possible, whole understandings of civil liberty. So, you know, when I started this book, um, years, really years back, uh, it really felt like, you know, the thinkers I was thinking of, Brad Gregory, McIntyre, it was a very kind of rarefied academic debate. There weren't really, if you open the newspaper, there weren't really like, as there are now, these real kind of existential debates, like can democracy survive? Is, is liberalism ending this kind of thing? Is it failing as the Patrick Neen's book uh, argues? It kind of seemed like, you know, a debate just amongst academics, but really in the last few years, it, it sort of became much more in the, the public conversation. Hmm. Wow, that's great. That, that picture, especially with the, the pandemic, it's very clear in my mind now. Thank you. Uh, another thing that I wanted to have you sort of define and walk through a little bit is the concept of modernity. I, we haven't, I don't think I've touched on that at all on uh, this podcast. So I was trying to kind of gear this towards anyone who's new to Bonhoeffer, who's right. just, you know, typed in Bonhoeffer into the iTunes store and trying to find something about him. So someone who isn't familiar with sort of pre-modern, modernity, post-modern, these sorts of ways of thinking. You mentioned a little bit about uh, Charles Taylor. I know he's very, very key thinker in this. Um, yeah, could you sort of define modernity and uh, imagine that, that that's helping define modern politics? Yeah, in some ways, they're all kind of interweaved themes. Uh, and I kind of come at them from a lot of different perspectives, you know, just as I've been talking just so far, I've been focused on kind of political liberalism, even political philosophy, you know, kind of normative claims about how we should organize our societies. There's other kind of ways at looking at modernization at a kind of more sociological level where you look at how um, in the past few centuries, societies have changed uh, in various ways. You know, we, we are in many ways more individualistic. People are um, not in the kind of small communities, for the most part, of course, there's all kinds of uh, counterexamples to this, but in the kind of prevailing kind of uh, general society, people don't live in sort of small communities where their, their ways of life are given to them by the community. They instead are, you know, part of this global kind of society. They can choose in many ways what kinds of norms, what kinds of ways of living they, they want for themselves. And some thinkers, and, and you see the, a lot of this in Charles Taylor, have talked about that in particular as um, being a challenge in various ways. Not, and again, not all only because of the kind of political questions I've raised about liberty and freedom and so on, but instead that it's actually a challenge for human beings to live in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, there's a kind of sense of 
malaise. We kind of lose our way. We, we have so many choices. We can go online and buy any objects we want. We can go around shopping and so on that we kind of lose a sense of meaning in some sense. So those are kind of some of the themes. I mean, it's kind of difficult to define these big concepts like modernity, but those are some of the themes that I was interested in um, from reading people like Taylor. And I found some resonance in, um, especially in Bonhoeffer in some ways to, to that, you know, he's the kind of things he's talking about in, in ethics, particularly chapters like heritage and decay. Um, I don't know if that gets at what you're, what you're, no, that's, that's great. Um, I mean, I talk a lot in the book as well about kind of modern notions of eschatology and how there's this sense of that by being a modern people, we've somehow moved beyond the kind of uh, dark ages that, that were before. So there's a kind of notion of progress. There's mm -hmm. a kind of notion of how progress is itself providential so that whatever you know, people are worried about being on the wrong side of history, there's a sense that wherever history goes, it somehow is, is moving forward. And I talk a lot in the book about uh, the Francis Fukuyama, his book on the end of history and the last man. That was another book that very much influenced me at the, at the time I was uh, first getting into this project. And um, and yeah, so that's great. Well, yeah. Uh, you mentioned also uh, kind of a preview of that first chat, first chapter mm -hmm. in there uh, that you have Greg Gregory, Alistair McIntyre and, and Stanley Howard Ross yeah. kind of in conversation and list their various kind of critiques of modern politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm wondering if you can maybe if you can maybe um, provide like a 10,000 foot sure. <laughs> view of, of what those arguments are. And then we can jump into kind of how. Bart responds and, and Bonhoeffer's thoughts on these things mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, Brad Gregory is a historian, primarily of the Reformation, uh, but he's written a lot of books and he's a very acclaimed uh, scholar. And um, so, in some ways, I I don't feel like that, like I'm I'm not trying to sort of summarize everything he's ever written. But sure. in the book, I focus on a book he wrote called "The Unintended Reformation." Um, came out in 2012, I believe. It's a long, like 700 page book. And basically his argument there is that all the problems that we see in uh, modern Western societies, you know, the United States being paradigmatic example, come down or are to blame on the Reformation. Hmm. Now, why is that? Well, because the Reformation sort of took us a, a kind of widespread, you know, pan-European um, culture that was centered around a, a shared worldview, Catholic theology, and uh, destroyed that, that kind of shared sense of, hmm. of the way things are. And so in a sense, you could, you could say his, his view is that the problem with modern Western societies is what he calls hyper pluralism. We, people have so many different uh, ways of life, so many different views of the good. Everything re retreats into a kind of consumerism, a kind of consumer consumeristic relativism where I just pursue my own pleasures or my own uh, desires and you do the same. And we try to sort of not get in each other's way. Uh, the, the cover of his book shows, you know, some reformation figures. Of, um, actually the, so Times Square, at the top, sort of this 
this example of consumer capitalism. And then below that uh, kind of image of the reformers hmm. um, kind of upside down as if they're the kind of source of this consumeristic capitalism that's sort of uh, destroying us, destroying the planet and uh, making life kind of unlivable. So he, he's giving this history. It's a very, it's a historical account. He's not necessarily taking a moral stand per se. He's more of a historian, but he's wanting to show, you know, that everything that we have now can be traced to this, this history. And, and you know, he gives examples of, you know, as soon as the Reformation happened, it was only a few years before, you know, those groups had all split. And then a few years later, there were, you know, hundreds and, and even thousands of, of different churches. So it, it wasn't like we just had like two churches, you know, uh, for centuries. McIntyre right. um, is, you know, a philosopher and I'm focused on, a, well, a few of his books, uh, After Virtue is one of his most famous, but I also uh, delved into a, a more recent book he wrote called Ethics and the Conflicts of Modernity, which is a I think a really good book actually uh, hasn't been given as much attention near as I can tell. Um, so his, his argument is somewhat similar to Gregory's and, and indeed, I mean, he, I'm sure he influenced Gregory and Gregory footnotes him uh, pretty regularly, but he's more focused on, instead of just on hyper pluralism or on sort of diversity, he's focused on that every, a, a way of, of life needs a telos. We need a kind of teleological framework to give, um, coherence to, to our life. And because we don't have that shared telos, we can't describe what it would mean to live well. We don't have any account of virtue or of excellence. And so he has this whole account of how we get controlled by these kinds of experts who use what they see as allegedly value-free science as a way to kind of control us. And in his view, we live in a kind of new dark ages where the barbarians are not so much at the gates, but are actually ruling, ruling the society. And he famously calls for a new and doubtless very different St. Benedict to kind of, you know, uh, get us through these, these dark ages. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I turn to Hauerwas, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, well-known, well-known uh, Protestant theologian, taught at Notre Dame and then taught at Duke University for many, many years. Um, and he, in a sense, agrees with Gregory and McIntyre, but he, he argues, in his, I, I, as, I, as I tell the, the narrative, that the moral community that we need around a shared good for, you know, for which uh, McIntyre calls has actually already been actualized or realized in the, the church, or at least it would be realized if the church lived up to its calling. So the actually... Um, the actually existing church rarely, rarely lives up to these norms, but Hauerwas claims that it, it could and, and should. So they're all kind of arguing that um, there's something really fundamentally amiss in societies that we, we live in today. And either we need to do something or maybe just despair that there's no, I mean, I, I do think the end of Gregory's book is more of just a despair, a council of despair. He has no, you know, um, attempted program at what to do to solve any of this. It's, you know, we're really, we're really at a dead end because of something that happened five centuries ago. So it's hard for him to imagine what we could do um, to get out of it. So it's pretty, you know, those are pretty uh, negative uh, stories. So I I was sort of interested. I was like, well, what, 
what would happen if I look at, you know, thinkers like Barton Bonhoeffer? I want to thinkers that kind of are close to these figures. I mean, Harwas, for example, is, a, you know, he's Bardian in many ways. I mean, he was really influenced by Bard. He, he you know, as far as I can tell, really likes reading Bard and so on. And, and he also has a book on Bonhoeffer. So I wanted, I wanted some thinkers who were kind of adjacent to this narrative, um, but who might in some ways be able to, to push against it, to provide a, another way of, of looking at it. So that's where I thought Barton Barnhofer were, were helpful. That's great. I kept uh, thinking as I was reading, um, especially the Brad Gregory section, mm -hmm. um, that it sounded a lot like uh, Bonhoeffer's The World Come of Age. Mm. Um, but like a really despairing look at this where Bonhoeffer's sort of like just laying out here's just the reality of things we got to figure out what to do from here where yeah. and yeah. I always I gave this help sort of lead uh, a class at my previous school on a discussion on Bonhoeffer's letters and papers and we were talking about the world coming of age and how it's you know it's what does that mean? And it's essentially like the world has moved out of its religious parents' home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's out on its own. It's being becoming its own person. And Gregory seems to that that's a really uh, a bad thing. And I felt like as I was reading it that the despair there almost and him his reflection on this almost seems like a. Uh, I wish I could just go back and live with my religious parents and be a kid again. Like <laughs> like there's no there's no hope from here on out. It only goes downhill. Uh, I wish things were simple like they used to be kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I think there's something to that. I mean, I think if he were, if he were, you know, in this discussion, he would, he would object to some extent, but I'm not sure exactly how he would, because it really is. Uh, it just yeah. sounded really despairing. Like he said. Yeah. It's, um, you know, to his credit, he, 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 he thinks that, you know, for centuries, we had a society sort of united around uh, this, this one kind of theological framework, and, and it was sort of able to maintain itself. And, and also to his credit, I mean, he acknowledges that there were a lot of, you know, evil aspects of those societies as well, sexism, racism, so it wasn't, it certainly wasn't ideal. And he, he notes that in the book. Uh, but uh, still, in the end, I, I wonder where you go from that, you know, living where we do today, you know, right, yeah. take that. So yeah. how does how does Bart's approach differ from all of these options? Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting when I talk to some people about the book who kind of you know know Bart and, and know some of this this literature and know Bonhoeffer. Um, they're always kind of surprised that I use Bart to push against it because they kind of, in their minds at least, uh, subconsciously or consciously associate Bart with this kind of rejection of uh, modern society or liberalism or liberal democracy or, or the whole panoply. Uh, and they're sort of like, oh, I can see Bonhoeffer because he, he sort of, you know, he's like the children of light. He's, he's great and everything. So he's always doing the right thing. Um, but Bart is, uh, is not. And what I found interesting in re doing the research and writing the book was that in many ways it was the, other way around, it was, it was kind of easier to see Bart pushing against this. And there were some extent, there's some, there's some passages, I discussed this to a certain extent in the book of um, ethics, Bonhoeffer's ethics, where he, he's also kind of seeing what 
the collapse of society that he saw, you know, in the 1930s and 40s in Europe, the rise of Nazism, the destruction, um, world war, and so on. He's seeing that as resulting from, in some sense, a kind of rejection of Christianity. Um, he, he doesn't, he, he has a very kind of complex view, which I discuss in the book, but um, there is to an extent, some of that, what we might call a narrative of decline that we, we moved from this reformation uh, as he sees it as um, a good thing. And then we've, we've declined to this, this state that we're in. Um, but Bart, you know, Bart is um, always reluctant to attach the Christian faith, the Christian message, the gospel to kind of any human way of living. So it, there's always a kind of natural way in which he's not going to think that God or, or the faith is somehow bound to any cultural form. So, so I, I discussed that um, quite a bit in the book. Yeah. Hmm. That's great. How does, how does Bonhoeffer's understanding of sort of the ethical life affect how he views what's becoming modern society? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in one of the chapters, I, I focus on what Bonhoeffer calls the divine mandates. Um, these are features of human life that make society possible as he sees it. And basically they give form to our moral lives and to our lives um, and community. So they're what I, I call them in my own kind of analysis of them as institutions of ethical life. So that what they are, the, the mandates as Bonhoeffer talks about them um, are the church or religion, the state, uh, marriage, family, and the culture and culture work or the private economies want to call it. So church, state, family, and culture. Um, and the key is for Bonhoeffer that these various sort of areas of society should not encroach on one another. They should each have their kind of own integrity. Hmm. So the state shouldn't tell the church what necessarily, you know, what to do or try to be the church or try to provide a theological message. Uh, neither, neither should the church, you know, try to govern the society. That doesn't mean the church can't be critical of the government, but it shouldn't itself try to, you know, be the state, nor should it try to be the, a family, you know, it, it, the, the family and marriage have their own kind of integrity, their own way, way of life. And then there's also a kind of space for, for work, culture, and a kind of a private economy. So each of these spheres requires its own kind of freedom in order to pursue its end. And as we were talking, uh, I think in some email correspondence, um, Bonhoeffer is very much drawing on his Lutheran heritage. Luther spoke of the, you know, the three estates uh, comprising society, the government, the household economy, and the church. And those are basically the, the mandates uh, as Bonhoeffer sees them. Mm. Um, I, I was listening to the podcast you, you did with Michael DeYoung, who has a has done a lot of work to sort of retrieve and to outline the Lutheran background of Bonhoeffer, which was in many ways um, had been downplayed by Bonhoeffer scholarship for some generations for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I think de Young has a book, uh, Bonhoeffer's Reception of Luther, that really, I think, shows de definitively how Lutheran Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was. Um, you know, he went through a few phases he, he talked 
about the orders of creation to what to discuss these forms of life and then he decided that, that was problematic so he changed it to orders of preservation to sort of show that this is a kind of a a Christological aspect. These are orders that preserve our life um, in the midst of, of, of sin and so on. Mm-hmm. And then finally, he decided to call them the, the mandates in a way to speak more, even more dynamically about how these are actually, you know, from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, a little bit about Bonhoeffer, uh, Bonhoeffer's reception of Luther. Um, I was like, I think that's like my fourth fourth episode, mm-hmm. and I well, was, was a couple years ago then. Yeah. yeah, it was a while ago, and it was you know I, I think it was the first episode I did where I didn't have any sort of connection going into it. Mm-hmm. Or like Stephen Haynes, I had reached out to him, and his book was just coming out, so I was like, maybe he'll he'll be in. And uh, and I, I knew Steve Vesner is my first episode, and then he sort of introduced me to to Barry Harvey. Uh, but with him, I just like cold call emailed him. Yeah. Uh, similar <laughs> similar to you and uh I was like I-, I need to ask him everything I can so I like read all three of his books and I mean that Luther Bonhoeffer's reception of Luther's book is excellent and I think I, I have inter- I interviewed air quotes um <laughs> for him for that for maybe five minutes and it's like you know it's a big book and so might have to redo that one one day. Michael, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me know. Actually, it's funny. I was just listening to that podcast yesterday. And you, you're right. He, um, you talked mainly about his first book. Yeah. Berlin and whatever, Bonhoeffer. <laughs> yeah, it's the Bonhoeffer's Intellectual Formation or uh, uh, Theological Formation. Intellectual yeah, Bonhoeffer's formation. Intellectual Formation. And, um, and then, but, but Michael did a great job of very briefly summarizing his, his later two books. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. I should have given him a lot more time, but I, yeah. I didn't want to take too much of it. Yeah. Well, his, book on, his book on uh, Bonhoeffer and resistance was, was very important for my book. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd actually written even that chapter on resistance and the, the mandates I'd actually already written it and in fact, Michael, Michael himself read it because I wrote it for a, a workshop that he was leading. And then he's like, he very sort of humbly and modestly said, you might want to read my book because it was very much on this topic. So I, I read his book. I think it was still in a kind of PDF proofs. And uh, I was able, and that helped me kind of mm-hmm. get, you know, really get, go in more depth at the, the questions I was trying to get at um, before I published it. So Awesome. So something I wanted to sort of just uh, recap for those who aren't familiar with kind of this inner working of of the mandates, but also this Lutheran idea of the two kingdoms Mm -hmm. um, that Bonhoeffer kind of plays off of. Could I have you just kind of list what that is from Luther's thought? And uh, I guess, I don't know how, how the mandates fit in there, I guess. Right. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's, and it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the Bonhoeffer sort of guild was to some extent trying to distance Bonhoeffer from Luther over the years, because the, the two kingdoms um, idea kind of fell on hard times because it, you know, it, it's this idea that from, from Luther, just to put it very, very crudely, um, that there's a kingdom of, of kind of the government <laughs> and a kingdom of, um, of the church and that these each are 
you know, Christ is involved in both. That's part of it. So it's not just that, that Christ is only in the church. And then there's this kind of evil government that, that the church is uh, set over against or should withdraw from, or should go sort of live uh, off in the woods in some sense, because uh, the government is the power of the devil or something like that. Quite the contrary. The idea is that Christ is, is made real and present both in the, the state and in the church. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons why I think Bonhoeffer scholars were sort of worried about that idea was it, it seemed that you couldn't make sense of political resistance in that account. So if the church has its own kind of kingdom that shouldn't be inter- interfering with the kingdom of the state and vice versa, how can we take account of the fact that Bonhoeffer got involved in a conspiracy, you know, to overthrow the state, the mm. Hitler regime. And so I think, you know, there was a natural sense of, you know, he must have repudiated, at least in his practice, that, uh, that idea of the two kingdoms. He must have decided that Luther was wrong. And uh, because he, he engaged in political resistance and there was a, a and, um, you know, what, what Michael de Young does both in his 2016 book on Bonhoeffer's reception of Luther, as well as in his 2018 book on Bonhoeffer's uh, theory of resistance is to show that, that actually Bonhoeffer's practice itself of resistance was, was grounded in, in this, this Lutheran idea of the, the two kingdoms um, I don't know if I in the book I discuss I discuss that some more, um, but it, especially I think it's chapter four where I talk about the idea of a Bonhoeffer moment, the idea of political resistance grounded in Bonhoeffer as an exemplar. Um, but the key is that it's really when the state has just stopped functioning as a state. Mm-hmm. That's when. Uh, resistance is called for. The state has just completely abrogated its its purpose. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That you have this section in in the book about resistance and specifically the ever famous Bonhoeffer moment. Um, right. Are we living in a Bonhoeffer moment? That yeah. question um, yeah. is that what it means? Is are, are we living in a, sort of a society that? Uh, no, is no longer functioning, so we have to do something about it. Or, um, what does it mean to live in a Bonhoeffer moment? Yeah, it's a funny, it's a good question, right? I mean, I, I think at some point you could say it means whatever the person who says we're in a Bonhoeffer moment. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, because they people say it in different kind of for different reasons or or whatever. Um, I know you interviewed Stephen Haynes; he's got a, a whole book. Mm-hmm. But it's called the Bonhoeffer moment, isn't it? Uh, the battle for Bonhoeffer. The battle for Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I discussed that a bit in the book too. And that, that, that's a really good book because he, he goes through, Haynes goes through all the ways that this idea has been, uh, has appeared, you know, all the way down to Twitter posts and blogs and uh, comments on blogs and, and, and everything. Um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the ways people mean it is just, it's a time for resistance. It's a time for political resistance in the most basic sense, you know, Um, we can't just go on in the normal sort of uh, 
way of things and wait till the next election and, you know, even organize uh, to, to get voters out for the next election. No, no, we, we can't do that. We have to go out on the streets. What I, what I argue in the, the book though, in that chapter is it, it gets pretty vague and even dangerous about what it means because mm. does it mean you're calling for an assassination attempt? I mean, because right. that's what Bonhoeffer uh, you know, allegedly and somewhat, it's a confused sort of uh, question, but he, you know, he, you know, kind of condoned a, a possible, cons- you know, he certainly condoned a, a conspiracy against Hitler mm-hmm. and uh, even uh, an attack on Hitler's life. So it's uh, pretty extreme if that's what one means um, to be using it, you know, even in America today, I would argue that's pretty extreme. Um, so people will usually, uh, they'll do what they'll do, as I argue, is a kind of double move. They'll say, okay, we're in a Bonhoeffer moment. Like we have to, we have to follow Bonhoeffer's example. And it might seem like they're calling for some sort of real violence, you know, and then they, they kind of walk it back and they say, but by Bonhoeffer moment, I mean, you know, later in the, the paper, later in the <laughs> blog piece or whatever they say, by Bonhoeffer moment, I mean simply to ask who Christ is for us today, because that's the question that Bonhoeffer asked, which, of course, is that's a good thing to do. And uh, I support that. But um, the question is whether you're kind of trying to have your cake and eat it, too, like yeah, kind totally. of use Bonhoeffer to make this really radical claim about political violent resistance and then just when you might be challenged on it, kind of step back and say, no, I just mean, let's ask who Christ is for us today. So it's, that's uh, one of the things that I think goes on. And that's one of the reasons why I argue in that chapter that like, look, maybe a better way to do this is to say, why don't we use a, why, why don't we think of a Bonhoeffer moment as a time to reflect on what Bonhoeffer wrote? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also good to reflect on, you know, his practice, of course. That's one of the reasons why everybody is so interested in Bonhoeffer. But why don't we think about what he actually wrote about society and what he wrote about what helps keep tyranny at bay, what helps keep society endure through time, what helps keep our communities uh, not only stable, but even help them thrive. And and that's why I bring in the mandates as a, a way to think about that. Yeah. I think I heard uh, you tell the story once on another interview that you got this book the day of the of the capital storming is that right I did. yeah that was that was uh quite a moment because i a bonhoeffer moment yeah oh, I'm kidding i'm kidding it, <laughs> it was, was just there <laughs> yeah no but it certainly showed i think that that january 6th how you know how high the temperature had risen i mean where we had gotten yeah. and uh you know, it's going to remain a question, you know, wh- whether we stay at that or whether we can kind of, you know, come back from the, the brink. Yeah. Great. Okay. I have a couple more questions for you. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like your last chapter. Um, yeah. You write about uh, Karl Barth's writing after Dietrich Bonhoeffer's execution. Yeah. And I guess I'm interested in learning more about um, sort of Barth's understanding of natural theology and how it led to the rise of national socialism. Right. Um, and uh, sort of what is what's Bart's suggestion on how society should go on after 1945, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 
it's a pretty like um, interesting and perhaps surprising, perhaps shocking argument that he makes. It, what he argues, and it's really found, it's found in some of his occasional letters, which I talk about, but also even in the church dogmatics, um, he, he argues that there was a negative preparation. So not so much that natural theology, which is kind of associated with Protestant liberalism. And again, there I'm talking about liberalism in a whole different way from <laughs> liberal democracy, mm. but um, just to show again, the, the various meanings, but um, what's considered, you know, let's call it 19th century Protestant, German Protestant liberalism he sees as having a negatively prepared the way for national socialism precisely by taking away the safeguards which the Christian church, the Christian faith could and should have had um, as a way to kind of block block that from happening. Mm. So it's not so much that it, it literally caused it, but it's that natural theology this idea that uh, the faith, uh, the Christian faith somehow arises out of our, our human nature or something like that um, took away, yeah, took away that ability for a kind of critical stance over against culture. So once that was kind of in the water, kind of nationalism arose, that whole sense of a nationalism got itself got theologically imbued. It kind of got mm. incorporated into the Christian faith rather than critiqued by it um yeah wow <laughs> it's, it's so interesting I, I'm, I'm so interested in, in that time period in general obviously doing this podcast but uh just to understand how like sort of the dominoes that fall in place yeah. for all these major world events um, yeah it was interesting in reading that that um you know you, you know bart was one of bonhoeffer's you know mentors teachers to some extent we could say you know he was Bart was a good, uh, about 20 years older than Bonhoeffer uh, and, you know, influenced Bonhoeffer to a great degree. And, uh, but then because Bonhoeffer was killed when he was 39 by the, by the Nazis, um, you know, Bart outlived him by over 20 years after that. So in a way, as I, I sort of discussed this briefly, Bart kind of became part of the early reception of Bonhoeffer. And he discussed some of Bonhoeffer's work some, somewhat critically. He was critical of the letters and papers and of ethics. Uh, he was more positive about Bonhoeffer's early works, actually. Hmm. Um, I was, but I was in the, um, there's a letter uh, that he wrote in the 1960s when Eberhard Beitke's biography of Bonhoeffer came out, which was in 67, I believe. And uh, Bart claims to have read the whole thing from, from, front to back. And a few years ago, I was in the uh, BART archives in Basel, and I found BART's copy of Eberhard Betke's uh, biography of Bonhoeffer on the shelf, and I, I picked it up. And, you know, there, there was underlining throughout it. But, but even more kind of intriguing to me is on the back, he had created a little uh, kind of index that said KB-DB. And then it showed like, it wasn't that many, maybe four or five pages where the influence of Bart on Bonhoeffer was discussed. And so he, he had noted that, which I found somewhat touching actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause that, even that would have been 22 years after Bonhoeffer died. So it was, yeah, it was interesting. Wow. That's awesome. I'm, I've been really into um, sort of that relationship between Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. and Bart for quite a while now and writing a lot of that for my dissertation. It's kind of my project. Yeah. Um, 
I meant to ask you what, what your project's going to be on. Yeah, uh, I, I'm trying to just scope out his soteriology okay. in general. Um, okay. So I, I don't think there's been any works there. Bonhoeffers. I'm, yeah, Bonhoeffers, Bonhoeffers yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm, right now I'm trying to work out Bonhoeffer's understanding of reconciliation and okay. uh, its relationship to Barth's understanding of reconciliation. Or is it one and the same? Because uh, if it is, I have a bunch of evangelical friends that are going to be really bummed. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I was, you know, I, I started this podcast and started interviewing Stephen Haynes and immediately, you know, coming from this, coming to this from an evangelical background was kind of blown away from Stephen's book, just realizing that uh, getting into Bonhoeffer via Metaxas was uh, not the way to go. Um, and that right. I had I had a very, very different view than the historical Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. uh, which I know some some people I know would be become uninterested after that. But I, I found it more interesting. It's like, oh, yeah. OK, well, who is this? And so I, I get to kind of know this person um, through doing this podcast has been great. Um, but in that process, starting to really realize that uh, the vernacular that we we read in Bonhoeffer, I think we put so much of our lens on that. Um, obviously, right. I mean, obviously everyone co-ops yeah. Bonhoeffer because he's the guy, you know, like yep. he really stood up against evil, but even in just like Christian circles about obedience and, uh, oh, like, you know, I, I think there's a, a great connection between the way that you think and the way that you live. So you try to say, okay, how does this person think so that I can live like this person who's had so much courage in, in the midst of evil? And then, um, but in doing that, I still think that we take some of those theological terms and put them how we would hear them in our uh, Western American uh, evangelical Sunday school lesson on reconciliation when I, I don't think that right. Bonhoeffer is using it the same way. So uh, yeah. all that to say, I'm, I'm trying to scope out and make a clear argument for um, here's how he uses it, uh, these terms. Which is interesting because he's he's Lutheran, so he's justification by faith is a huge mm-hmm. thing, um, and I think Bart would uh, say it's a huge thing, but I think they would probably mean different things uh, and all about the inner workings about how that occurs. So yeah. trying to find the the Lutheran reform mm-hmm. split there too. So mm-hmm. plenty to cover. I just started, um, but we'll get there. Um, but I won't take too much more of your time. I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess it's a two-parter because I'm going to throw in Bart too, but it's the, the old desert Island question. Um, so if you have one book by Bonhoeffer, one secondary source on him, a book about his life, theology or or anything, um, which two would you take? And then I'm going to ask you to do the same for Bart, but you cannot use all of the church dogmatics. You can, if you you do church (laughs) dogmatics, get one, one volume. What do you think? It's funny you said that because I was going to ask if I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, after you read it, you would probably be able to keep a fire going forever because it's so long. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, by the time I finish it, you know, the ship will come to pick me up. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, yeah. I, so I've, I, we were talking before. I, I've listened to several of your your podcasts, which I really enjoyed, and I'll probably listen to all of them because I'm a big podcast listener. Um, by the by, the next few weeks, and so I've listened to several of the other several of the. Uh, examples on this and i'm not sure i have a a whole lot new to add i mean i think i would go with ethics from bonhoeffer simply because you know it's uh 
I get a lot out of it. I, I've uh, every time I read it, I, I kind of forget things that are in there. It's it's pretty dense. It's kind of a late work, so you feel like you're getting like the mature Bonhoeffer when you read it. Um, so I think I would have to go with ethics. Mm. Secondary source uh, again. I know someone else has used this on your podcast, but I think I would also go with the Oxford Handbook of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just Pretty because much. there's so much there um, by so many good authors, and uh, you know that would keep me keep me reading for a while. So I think I'd have to go with those. For Bart, I think you know I'll do the, the around the same same year the Oxford Handbook of Karl Bart came out. So I'm going to use that one as my uh, <laughs> use that for both. I'm going to have two Oxford Handbooks with me. Right on the island, and um, what would I do for my primary text? I did have all uh, thirteen volumes of the Church Dogmatics in mind. I can't use that. You know, I think I will go with Evangelical Theology and Introduction. I have listened. I, I got the audiobook of that actually, which is like I think the only Bart book that's on audiobook. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I like audiobooks. Yeah, and I listened to it. I mean, I this sounds crazy, but I listened to it like over ten times. It's so good. Have you you read it? So I, audio? I I haven't done the I, I did the audio maybe like I got it from my library and uh-huh. it like ran out kind of thing. Yeah, uh, like a digital copy of it. Okay. But I have a physical copy of it and I read it probably four months ago and yeah. was just blown away. I don't know what's so. It's just it's so rich and uh-huh. uh, it's so you know he wrote this like in 1962. You can tell it's a short book, maybe 200 pages, 150 pages. It's got so much of everything kind of there, but it's, it's like so much, it's like, you know, just a mature, the mature Bart, but also he's kind of surveying everything rather than kind of getting so much into the nitty gritty. It's really, it's really great. And it um, holds up well, uh, even listening to it. So I would go with that. Awesome. Well, speaking of audiobooks, I wanted to, I saw this today and I thought I, I should mention this. Um, because usually these books that I'm, uh, the people that I'm interviewing are academic books, so they're like pretty pricey. Um, so, uh, they're hard to get your hands on, but yeah. I think today, uh, today is June 8th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's going on for a little bit longer and there's like a prime day deal on Amazon for oh. you to get an audible membership for six ninety five us dollars and nice. your book is available to get for $6.95, which is like by far the cheapest of any book that I have uh, had anyone interview. So I wanted to throw that out there because I know that academic texts are expensive. So if any of the listeners are interested in reading this book, Bart Bonhoeffer and Modern Politics by Dr. Joshua Malden, um, $6.95, you can't really beat it. So yeah, no, even, even on regular days, the, uh, the audio book is only $10. Oh, awesome. So yeah, I was happy to see that too because the hardback is is pretty pricey. Um, so I was delighted that it came out on audiobook, and and I like I'm, I'm myself a big audiobook listener, so I was happy. Yeah, same. Yeah, uh, yeah I listen to audiobooks all the time. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'll listen to my own. I have to be honest, but I, I do <laughs> to other people's audiobooks. Fair enough. I I, I wouldn't listen to mine either. <laughs> uh, I don't blame you. Um, it's not me reading it either. I'll point that out. It's uh, okay. a professional. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again for doing this and taking the time. I, I really love the book. It gave me, it was so different from the other typical theology books that I, I worked through. So it was really, I guess, stimulating. I like, I, I thought about it for days and just thought about the understanding of the world and 
society and how Bonhoeffer and Bart kind of interact with those things. So you gave me a lot to chew on and I really appreciate you just taking the time. Well, yeah. Thank you, uh, Corey. I really in- enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. Well, take care and I hope to talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Dr. Malden for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Bonhoeffer We have quite a few supporter benefits available on there. Uh, so please check those out. And speaking of the Patreon, special thank you to the supporters of this show, Soren Jensen, Andrew Clark Howard, Arthur Houts, Greg Harbaugh, Chris Sunby, Wilco Ollies, JT Caldwell, Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, and Kevin Dykstra. And of course, as always, a special thank you to you, the listener. I love doing these and I look forward to them each month. So thank you so much for listening. Oh,